much into our world then where we are to leave our cars in certain parts of town where hospital equipment is screwed down and padlocked so that it cannot be taken and where our homes have more locks and alarms than ever before comes this word from heaven, you shall not steal. The Gideons are delighted to announce that 22,000 Bibles containing this very commandment are stolen from hotel rooms every year. And of the uh, ten, though, this, te- this eighth commandment about stealing is probably the one we are more likely than the others to think, well, it refers to somebody else. This is a word against thieves, and we're not thieves. The man who broke into your home, the youths that run out of the shop with goods under their arm, it's about those joy riders, or about those uh, who snatch people's handbags. Here is a commandment then against the man who went into a bank and gave a note to the cashier. This is a hold-up. Hand over all your cash. To which she replied, straighten your ties, stupid. Your photo is being taken. (laughs) You and I know what thieves look like. Or do we? I hope you still have your Bibles open, page 1053, where uh, Lou was reading from the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was wealthy, but was unhappy. He was wealthy, but unhappy. Page 1053. He was so unhappy that he thought that a man from a peasant village up north, namely Jesus, might be able to help him. But Zacchaeus was short. So short that when Jesus came, he had to climb up a tree to see him. You might have said that Zacchaeus was so desperate to see Jesus that he went out on a limb. Thought that was pretty good. Verse 2 then, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. One of the stereotypes we have around stealing is that it's poor people that steal. But Zacchaeus breaks that mould. He was wealthy, but still a thief. In breaking our stereotype, he reminds us that those who do steal, those who are thieves, do not fall into a nice category of person. It's not a matter of class or economic status. All kinds of people steal. And Zacchaeus' story reminds us that all kinds of people steal in all kinds of different ways. Zacchaeus is never involved with cars or entering people's homes or even a bank, yet still he is stealing. It's not confined to one particular method or person. In fact, stealing is wide-ranging. Not one person, nor one pattern or process. And therefore, we need to face the truth this morning that maybe this commandment that we think might refer to somebody else may in some measure refer to you and to me. We might not be as safe as we thought. I worked as a commercial manager in Cardiff before going into the ministry. Uh, I was there in insurance brokers. And one of my clients, we'll call him Mr. Jones, so that he can't be identified in Wales. There's one or two of those. He was big, but gentle. He was warm, friendly, unarticulate. He dressed well. Everybody in the office liked him. He was easy to do business with. A thoroughly decent chap for whom I arranged a portfolio of insurances. And then I received the visit from the CID 
who confiscated all the files, took detailed statements, and I find myself a witness at a large fraud case at Cardiff Crown Court. Had he been wearing the stripy jumper, but he didn't, and so I hadn't spotted him. And whilst I'm not suggesting for a moment that we're caught up in some major fraud, although we might be, I am suggesting that behind our respectability, behind our decent-looking lives, there may be things for all of us that cause us to become ensnared by this eighth commandment. We can be trapped in so many ways. Obviously, it's about robbery and burglary. In 1954, there were 75,443 burglaries in the UK. Now there are over a million every year. And that represents a phenomenal cost. The fear it engenders, the violation it causes, apart from the financial issues. If your home has been burgled, you will know what that has done to you and your family. And yet people say these words from heaven are outdated, are part of a different era. I don't think so. If there was ever a time we wanted to feel safer in our homes, it was this time of all times, is it not? You tell me stories about how you left the back door open or even the front door open and the key under the mat and nobody ever mattered. But nobody does that today because we live in fear of what might happen to ours and our things. But burglary and robbery is just the beginning of a whole web of ways we find ourselves ensnared by these words from heaven. In Leviticus, uh, way back, tucked away in God's word, is this little verse that reminds us that stealing needs to be applied to our personal lives as well as to our business lives. Do not defraud your neighbor, your personal life, and do not hold back the wages of a hired man. Do not mess around with this commandment in your business life either. So how on a personal level might we come croppers of this commandment? Well, if you've ever loaned any money without the intention of paying it back, then you've found yourself caught by this word from heaven. Debts, the Bible says, must be repaid. In fact, even when a widow in the Old Testament in Kings was desperate for money, God's priority for her was that she should pay back her debts. And Paul said, amongst the people of God, let no debt remain outstanding. Have you borrowed something, as Claire was alluding to, and not returned it? Apparently, according to the Psalms, it's the wicked that borrow and do not repay. CDs, books, dishes, DVDs, tools and games. You've gone to somebody's house, haven't you, and seen something that long ago used to be yours. Just me then. If you think I have something that's yours, this is a really good week to ask for it back. <laughs> the uh, novelist Anatoly France said this, never lend books because no one ever returns them. The only books I have in my library are those other people have lent me. <laughs> but it's not just in loans and in borrowing, but in our personal sharing of needs. In our family life, we can fall foul of this command. 
He who robs his father or mother and says, it's not wrong, he's partner to him who destroys. And nobody here would argue with that, I'm sure. But the Bible goes on to say, it's not just a question of whether you've robbed or stolen from your father or mother, but much more. Listen to what Paul says to young Timothy. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice. Put your religion, your faith into practice. How? By caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. There might be a number of us here who financially owe a lot to our parents. We should be pleased to reciprocate, to pay them back as we care for them in their advancing years. Let's not begrudge or be tight-fisted in giving back to them. For this is pleasing to God. But sometimes I think maybe there's more here. For many parents, their greatest need is not for us to repay them in some financial sense, even if they've loaned us or given us money. They don't want it, they don't expect it. But maybe the debt we owe our fathers and mothers is more an emotional one. They want to share in us, to have our time and our attention, but often we might be too busy or too distracted to give them. Are we robbing them of the attention and the affirmation that is rightly theirs, that God says they deserve. And maybe we'll come back to that when we look at the fifth commandment about honouring our father and our mother. Then the Bible extends the principle beyond parents to the rest of the family. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's fairly strong language, wouldn't you suggest? Am I robbing my children in some way? Am I denying other members of my family something from me that is rightfully theirs in God's economy? You can be stealing without any money ever being involved. But then what about business? Are my dealings fair and honest? If you sell land to one of your countrymen or buy any from him, do not take advantage of each other. Do not screw him because the financial climate is in your favour. Do not pressurise him because the odds are stacked your side. Do I take advantage of other people by paying my bills late to increase my cash flow or to grab what little interest there may be? Is everything declared? Is my expense account legitimate? The estimated income going undeclared in our country, and it's an estimate, obviously, because it's going undeclared, is between 7 and £15 billion pounds per year. The Serious Fraud Office estimates that the British economy suffers, because of fraud, the loss of £29 billion annually. Can you imagine if we pumped back that kind of money into our economy? Is it those so quick to criticise the quality of care in our National Health Service that are with equal swiftness able to admit lines on their tax return? Brendan Barber, the TUC General Secretary, said back in February, unpaid tax costs every British worker £1,000 a year. If only a fraction of the missing tax were collected by revenue and customs, it would plug the gap in the government spending plans and save schools, hospitals and other public services from cuts. 
And then on a global scale, speaking in May, the director of Christian Aid, he says on a global scale, we predict that illegal trade-related tax evasion alone will be responsible for the deaths of 5.6 million children under the age of five between 2000 and 2015. That's almost 1,000 a day. It's not that the money isn't there. It's that we're being dishonest with it in some way or other. No wonder a newspaper headline read, Britain, a nation of cheats and thieves. But actually, the headline wasn't referring to those kind of issues. It was referring to the petty theft that goes on at work on a daily basis. Report on workplace theft revealed that three quarters of people have or do steal in some way from their employers. A quarter will make opportunities to steal and half will steal when the chance arises. And it's the subtleties where we may find ourselves compromised. We think nothing of a few sheets of paper, but we would be alarmed to know that over the past months we've taken a ream out of the office. Parts, supplies, resources, just the perk of the job, I know, and everybody does it. In fact, there is a culture that kind of cheers on and celebrates workers' rights to fleece their employers. One famous theft was Jotty Delory, who stole millions from her boss's personal accounts, much to the embarrassment of Goldman Sachs. She was sent to prison for seven years for her trouble. But maybe more worrying was people's response to her. In an interview with The Guardian a few years ago, she recalls how it felt to be cheered and clapped on the tube as she went to Sowak Crown Court, where she was on trial for stealing the four million pounds. She says, passengers who recognize me from the news would say things like, good on you, and serves them right. She also got over 70,000 letters of support. There was something acceptable, even glamorous, about all that she did. How much does all this pilfering cost? Recent survey suggests that 1.2 billion pounds is taken home from employees, from employers by employees each and every year. How many schools? 1.2 billion. How many hospital beds? How many starving children? 1.2 billion. Goes out of the office, in our pockets, over the year. Time's another good one, of course, the theft of time. Come to work late, uh, leave a little early, take the extra time at lunch breaks. And the more remotely people work these days, the harder it is to be disciplined in that area. The atmosphere, the output, the effort, all changes when you know the boss is actually looking. True? The culture changes where you work when the boss is there. But the Bible is so practical. It has things to say about employers. Employers should pay promptly. The wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Employers are to pay fairly. I will be quick to testify against those, says God, who defraud laborers of their wages. Employees, too, are to work as if the boss is watching all of the time. Slaves or workers obey your masters or your bosses, not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work as if the boss is always there, because the real boss actually always is. But then if it's not just your personal life and your business life, actually God 
saves his most uh, strongest language in the context of church. In fact, at one point, God says to the people, you're robbing me. And as you might imagine, the people were aghast. What do you mean we're robbing you? And here it is. This is what God says. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. The Bible teaches right from the beginning, right to the end, that the tithe, the first 10%, is God's for his work for his kingdom, for the service of his purpose. And in Malachi's day, they'd kind of let it slip. Maybe they were giving 5% or 6% or 2%, whatever. And God says, you're robbing me. And because they were dishonoring him, because they were robbing him, God says, look, because you're not doing it right, you're under a curse. I don't want any of us to be under a curse because we're dishonoring God with our giving. I don't want any of us to miss out on the blessing either that God promises when we get this right, when we do what we're supposed to do with our money, when we set aside the right amount first, God says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing. It's interesting teaching around this on the maturity course because it gives people the opportunity to share. And every time people share their experiences of how when they've got to this point of understanding and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't know quite how all this works out. By giving 10% to you first, I'm going to trust you for it. The the testimony of how God honours them in those situations are always uppermost. So some of us may be caught by the Eighth Commandment because we haven't sorted out our tithes and our offerings. Others might be caught by the Eighth Commandment because we're not giving our talent, as the Bible calls it. That which God has given me to use, I'm not using it. Or if I am using it, I'm not using it for his purpose, I'm using it for my own. And Jesus tells a story about uh, 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 the master that went away. Jesus has gone away, one day he'll come back, but he left a load of gifts, a load of talents. And the guy that had ten talents, well he went away and got a few more. And the guy that had five talents well he put those to good use and got some more and then the one guy did he did nothing with it he dug it in the ground and Jesus came back and he was mad and some of us might have our talent just tucked away in the ground just now and God says you're robbing me of you're robbing me you're you're robbing you're robbing me you're robbing the purpose of my kingdom and I don't like those words and and and, you know they're in there unfortunately we're just trying to be honest with with what God's saying here And it's strong language. And so before we get too comfortable about this Eighth Commandment, it's all about the guys in stripy tops. Apologies to those of you here this morning with stripy tops on. There are a few of you. Uh, uh, You know, maybe. And we haven't got time, have we, to talk about social injustice, international debt, plundering the environment, all of that. Stealing is wide-ranging. Remember when we began? We began with Zacchaeus. He wasn't your typical thief. It reminds us of stealing different kinds of people in different kinds of places, using different kinds of processes to steal. But secondly, back with Zacchaeus, if it's still open in front of you, stealing is wrong. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to the guest of a sinner. The people called it what it was. They didn't simply say, good on Zacchaeus for maximizing his opportunities. They actually said, Zacchaeus has got it wrong. What he's doing, he's raising the level of taxation in order that he can cream off the top extra percentage for himself. Zacchaeus has got it wrong. Look, Jesus has gone to the house of the sinner. And the challenge is, will we call things that are wrong in our lives wrong? Or will we cover them up with a whole load of euphemisms that make it seem a lot less wrong? Stealing is wrong. 
and it's always wrong. And it's wrong because it's against God. Everything is God's. You look out and you see the animals, they're God's. The cattle on a thousand hills, that's God's. Hey, the birds, that's God. Even the mountain the birds are on, that's God's. The creatures of the field, God says, hey, they're all mine. It's all His. And so we could go on. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. Even wealth and honor come from you. In fact, Paul reminds the young church and the young Timothy at the end of the Bible, you think that the money you've got is because you're clever, because you've got a good job, because you've worked hard. Remember, you're clever, you've got a good job, you've had the opportunity to work hard for only one reason. That's because God gave it to you in the first place. Everything comes from God. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Not just my library books are issued to me, but everything that I have. None of it's mine, all of it's his. And when we steal, it's not just against another human being or against a company, it's against the God of heaven who says, why did he take that? That's mine. It belongs to me. But more, It directly affects, I think, our relationship with God. Am I trusting God with my life or not? You see, when I take something that isn't mine, I'm saying saying to God, God, what you've given me actually isn't enough. I need what you've given me and I need this little bit more. And I become in doing that the very opposite of who God is and what he's like. Jesus put it this way. He says, I'm the opposite to the thief because the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. And when I steal something, when I grab something that isn't rightfully mine, or or that God hasn't loaned to me, I'm saying to God, God, what you've given me is just not enough. I need a little bit more. And what have I done? Have I aligned my life with the God of heaven? No. I've aligned my life with the thief, the robber from the beginning, and you know his name, who only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Just like lying. Suddenly I find my life aligned with the wrong side and I'm exhibiting characteristics of the wrong family. Stealing reveals my inability to trust God. Or put it this way, when we steal, we say that God is not enough. And the Bible says that's idolatry. It's the sin of the worst kind. That God is not enough. Stealing is wrong because it's against God. It's wrong because it's against others. We know, we know it is. We, we see the pain of it all around us. It wounds, it kills, it destroys. Forget this nonsense that the insurance company pays. You will know if someone's stolen against you, what you lost in terms of the physical stuff is nothing compared to the wound, the worry, the hurt, and the violation that you feel. Forget the fact that the insurance company pays. The real cost, other human beings pay. And it's against ourselves. Stealing's wrong because it's against you. You know the story, don't you, of the man who attempted to siphon petrol from a motorhome. He got much more than he bargained for, and by the time the police arrived, he was curled up in utter agony. The man had plugged his hose into the motorhome sewage tank. The owner of the vehicle declined to press charges, and I quote, saying, it was the best laugh he'd ever had. Theft is always bad for us. It ingests into our lives all that is ugly and wrong about the world of grasping and getting and grabbing that we live in. It's a vicious circle of deception and lies, never satisfying, urging us to more. Most thieves are caught because they were greedy. Delorie never intended to steal four million, but when she wrote that first check, I think it was for 70,000 and no one noticed. She was like, how hard can this be? And away she went. What we sow, we will eventually reap. 
And it's against ourselves because God says very simply, if you show that you're trustworthy in a little bit, then I'm going to entrust to you a big bit. And then he says something even more profound. If you show yourself to be trustworthy in handling worldly stuff, then I'll trust you with the true riches. With the true riches. So when God measures his trust of us in these things, what does he find? Stealing is wide-ranging and stealing is wrong. And the story of Zacchaeus, as we come into land this morning, reminds us how we need to respond. Like Zacchaeus, we need, quite frankly, to wise up. We must wise up. And there were four aspects, I think, of Zacchaeus coming to his senses, wising up about the way that he was living. You see, for all his wealth, Zacchaeus knew that what he had was not what he really wanted or needed. And as he began to reflect on his life, he went looking for Jesus. A man who in worldly terms had nothing compared to the Zacchaeus that had everything, but yet somehow had what Zacchaeus knew he wanted. And so after reflection, what does he do? He welcomes Jesus gladly. As you reflect this morning about grabbing and getting and grasping before a God who is utterly generous, are there areas of your life, areas of my life, where we have yet to welcome Jesus gladly. You see, Zacchaeus was trapped by the power of wealth. And the more he had, the more he wanted. And the more he wanted, the more he knew, he just knew he needed it. And so it went on. He was utterly trapped. And I suspect Zacchaeus longed to be free. Everyone hated him for it. He probably hated himself for it. And he longed to be different. But he could not escape the power of wealth that was consuming him until the day a man with greater power was welcomed into his life. You see, don't go out this morning trying to live better. It will be incredibly hard and end probably with you feeling very frustrated. Instead... Be determined to welcome God's greater power into your life. That those powers, those worldly, wealthy powers that so control are overthrown by the power from heaven. So he reflected. Reflection. Secondly, repentance. It was time for Zach to turn away. To turn away from the way he'd always been. Uh, and I love the way the Bible expressed it. Zacchaeus stood up for as long as he can remember. He'd walked through the street with his head down. He'd hidden away. Everybody hated him. If he'd sat in a room, it would have been in the corner, tucking himself away. But for the first time, Zacchaeus stood up. I'm going to take responsibility for who I am and for what I've done. He stood up, and for the first time, he called somebody other than himself the Lord, the boss, the one who's in charge. And it's as if he's saying, I'm going to sort this out. No longer is this going to rule me. I'm going to take responsibility and invite a new ruler into my life. I'm sorry. I'm coming clean. I can't pretend anymore about who I am and what I've been. I want to walk a new and different way. And so he turned around. 
And some of us, as we begin to do some reflecting about who we are and what's important and and what we're holding on to, we'll need to do that. We'll need to stand up and take responsibility and say, that which is in my life, I'm going to call it what it is, it's wrong. It's theft. I'm grabbing onto something that isn't rightfully mine. And I'm going to turn around. I'm going to take responsibility. And I'm going to invite a greater power into my life. And then thirdly, Zacchaeus made restitution. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back. I'm not just going to say I'm sorry but I'm going to do something about it to try and put it right. And the Bible's quite hot about putting it right. A thief must certainly make restitution. He must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion. We must make it right. Give it back. Put it right. Delete the software you haven't paid for. Remove the music that isn't yours. Write that letter. Find that tool. Give it back. The power of the universe will be on your side when you make restitution. The power of the universe will be yours when you give it back and say, I'm no longer going to be ruled by this kind of living. I'm going to give it back. Or keep it and stay aligned with the thief who comes to steal and destroy Reverend W.P. Nicholson preached in Belfast in the 1920s and so many shipyard workers were spiritually convicted of the sin of theft that they had had to build a new shed to house all the tools that were returned. If you've stolen something, give it back. Do something about it. If you've got no idea what to do with something in your house that you're thinking about now that you know shouldn't be there, bring it to me. I'll do something useful with it. I'm not joking, I'm being serious. I don't mean for my own personal ends. Listening to a preacher a few weeks ago uh, who was uh, preaching and giving people an opportunity to repent of things that they'd done wrong. He said one man came down to the front and he put £102,000 in cash in the bucket. So I can't live like that anymore. That's getting serious with God, isn't it? About the things that are wrong in our lives. And if you've stolen something by omission... Make restitution by starting to do it. That time for your parents, that talent for God's glory, that tithe for God's honour, start giving God the tithe before he asks for it to be backdated. That was a funny. You didn't find it funny. Perhaps you haven't given your tithe. I thought that was quite funny. You know, I can imagine us all being totally destitute by the end of the week as we pay back our tithe in arrears. No? Sorry about that. I'll get back to the serious message. But the best thing I love about Zacchaeus, apart from the fact that he was short, the best thing, that you're all too big, that's your trouble. The best thing about Zacchaeus, apart from the fact he was short, is that at the end, he realigns his life with the God who is generous. I will pay back four times. I'm not just going to sort it out. I'm going to doubly sort it. No, I'm going to triple it. No, I'm going to four times. I'm, I'm going to express something that is totally different to what my life has been about. This grabbing, this getting, this grasping. Now I've met the God who is generous, who is offering me salvation. My only response is to be abundantly generous. Four times I'll give back. 
He's realigning his life with the God of heaven. He's beginning to sing the song of the universe, to dance to the beat of heaven's drum. Four times. No longer what can I get away with, but how much can I give? And I guess that's the real question, isn't it? It's not maybe about what I've taken that isn't mine. Because when God says, be like me, he just says, be generous. So how generous am I in my personal life? How generous am I in business? How generous am I with my family? How generous am I in my church? You see, when Paul says to the thieves in Ephesus, he says, stop stealing. You must do that. But more. Instead of stealing, work that you may have something to share with those in need. And the New Living Translation uh, says something like, uh, if I can find it here, that you might give generously to others. Don't just stop stealing, but realign like Zacchaeus, your life with the God of heaven, who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives, and then it looked like he'd have to give his only son. It was his very heart, and he said, I'll give it. I'll give it. You've taken everything. And as Jesus died on the cross, the God of heaven had nothing left. He'd given it all. And yet we're into this getting and grabbing and grasping and stuff. So Zach realigns his life with the generosity of God. And I invite you to do the same. And I encourage myself to do the same. To live generously. Because that's how God has lived with and for us. We're going to sing about his generosity. Uh, and before us is an example, the, the greatest example of God's generosity. And after we've sung about his generosity, I'm going to lead us in some uh, prayers of responding. That we might put things right, that we might make reflection, that we might uh, make uh, turn around, make that act of repentance, that we might make restitution, that above all we might get our lives realigned with the generosity of Father God. You chose the cross.